Hey, welcome to Christ Community Church. I'm Jeremiah. And I'm Hannah. And we are the Dinners for Six coordinators. At Christ Community Church, our mission is restoring our broken world. Right now, we'd like to take this time to have the ushers come forward with today's offering. If you're visiting with us today, then welcome home. We are so glad that you're here, whether you've been with us for years or this is your first time. So with that in mind, anyone that walks through these doors has a great opportunity to get connected and get plugged in here at church. So we would ask that you go ahead and fill out the connection card that you'll find in the seat back in front of you. And at the end of the service, you can bring that up to the welcome desk and um, we've got a gift there for you. Yeah, and on the back of those connection cards too is a spot for prayer requests. If you have anything that you'd like to bring before God, um, get some prayer for, please fill those out and drop that in the offering plate or you can drop it off at the uh, welcome center desk as well. We might be biased here, but Dinners for Six is a great way to start getting connected at Christ Community Church. Here's how it works. Uh, basically six or seven people, couples or singles, will get together uh, once a month for three months to share a meal together. It's an awesome way to meet other people within the church, to build community, and it's a lot of fun. This is an ongoing process where we have signups going all year long, so you can either head out to the CCC website and there's some frequently asked questions out there um, or you can go ahead and just shoot me an email there's more information in the bulletin. It's the most wonderful time of year again. Uh, time for the annual meeting next Sunday January 26th at 1215 in the auditorium. Please join us in celebrating what God has done at Christ Community in 2019. Uh, we'll be approving elders and listening to what we have uh, going on as we enter in this new decade. We'll be eating pizza and who doesn't like pizza? So join us in the gym after the 1030 service and it's gonna be a great time. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. Uh, check out this promotional video for Winter Camp 2020. Christ Community Church is what you call home. Um, you probably received and should have received an email this week about our new lead pastor candidate who will be on ground here uh, Tuesday and will be preaching next weekend. His name is Daryl Holden and his wife Marie. They're going to be joining us uh, for a week of opportunity for you to get to know them 
a little bit better. There's all kinds of forums and group settings in which you have some Q&A, have opportunity to hear a little bit about their story, get kind of a snapshot uh, of this, this couple, and I, I am pretty, pretty much jacked about it. We have a video after the message, which makes me, I'm sorry, that means you have to stay um, for the message. Um, but anyway, we're going to show a video so we'll get kind of an introduction to them um, after the message this morning. Last week, Pastor Rich took us through chapter one of the book of Noah. Uh, Noah has four chapters, and they're actually, you think of it like this way, uh, maybe like a musical or an orchestra that has four separate uh, movements, but one major theme. Or a book that has only four chapters, but the theme is in every chapter. And Rich said that was this, that God has this massively big heart. It's not about a prophet who vacates his position and walks away uh, from the message that God gave him to deliver. It's about God's faithfulness and God's pursuit of us. If you weren't here last weekend, I would just encourage you to watch it because this message is iffy. But his message has great content, great delivery. Uh, and in my opinion, I love Rich. He's just such a good man, a sweet man. And uh, I felt it was his best message that he shared uh, since he's been a part uh, of this interim period. And he started out with what I'm going to start out, that first verse uh, to Jonah in chapter 1. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and this map is uh, the map that Rich shared last week. He's supposed to take a right, but he takes a strong, uh, strong left in the opposite direction. And for us, it would be very, very easy to be very condescending and self-righteous and say, dude, what's up with you? You're a prophet of God. You know you're supposed to listen to him. You've been faithful. You've done a great job. And now you bail. What is up with you? But before we do that, I want you to understand that the word that God gave Jonah to deliver to Nineveh was a hard word. And as Rich shared last week, Assyria... Um, uh, is the nation. Nineveh was its capital. They were the superpower of that day. And Assyria has been, and ha for, for years, uh, for centuries, was a long-time adversary and enemy of the Hebrew nation. The people of Nineveh, so I want you to get this and be able to wrap your arms around it, they were a very cruel and heartless people. And to give you kind of a framework so you can grasp it, think of Nero uh, who persecuted the, the early church. He would take Christians and stick them, I mean, on poles that would kill them, and then they would douse it with, with oil, and they would light them so that he would have light for his gardens. Nero would take Christians and have them covered with animal skins and throw them into lion, the lion's den. Now you might say, well, Greg, that's like, you know, that's a long time ago, that early church. That's over 2,000 years ago. Well, let me give you something you can maybe wrap your, hands on, uh, wrap your arms on a little bit better. Think of Nazi Germany and the terrible atrocities that were done to the Jewish people and to many people who weren't a part of the Aryan race. 22, I think the, the, the total was 22 plus million people lost their lives because of the evil of the Nazi empire. And if you take Nero, you take the Nazi empire, you're starting to get your arms wrapped around the people of Nineveh. Make no mistake about it, it was a hard call, it was a tough assignment. And Jesus, or God says, go and preach against it. It wasn't like he was supposed to go, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, and if you'll just tweak a few things, he'll like you. Preach against it means tell them, dudes, if you don't repent, God's going to completely wipe you out. 
Imagine going to Nero and saying, knock it off. God told me to tell you, knock it off. You'd be on one of those next polls. Or tell Hitler, hey, knock it off. The Jews are God's people. Uh, you would find yourself uh, probably dead. And that's what he's been called to do. But instead of taking a strong right, he takes a hard left. Jonah said no, he wouldn't go. He gets a one-way ticket on the love boat there at the port of Joppa, and he heads towards uh, Tarshish. Why? Because there's beaches there and sun and fun. A needed break, something that he felt he deserved. So he says no. But I want you to understand, even though Jonah bailed on God, God didn't bail on Jonah. In fact, God loved Jonah so much that he would not accept the prophet's resignation. And God is a God of tough love, and aren't you glad? God doesn't cross his arms in disgust, throw in the towel, turn his back, and walk away. In fact, he does the opposite. God pursues Jonah, this rebellious and disobedient prophet. He goes after him to get his attention, to turn him around, and get him back on course. And what God does initially is he sends Jonah's way three gentle promptings, promptings of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that he sends is a storm, and we saw that last week. Not just any run-of-the-mill storm, you know, a little rain, a little wind. No, it was a bad storm. How bad was it? It was a violent storm. How violent was it? It was so violent that it threatened to break up the ship. And did it work? Nope. Rich shared last week that this major squall came about and grew in intensity to the point that the seasoned sailors were afraid that they were going to die, so they cried out each to their own God. So afraid that the ship was going to break up that they took their payload, their paycheck, their cargo, and threw it overboard, hoping that that might save their very lives. They were convinced that they were going to die. And during that time, where's the prophet of God, Jonah? He's asleep below deck. He's taking a nap on his watch. So God sends another gentle prompting his way, and that came in the form of God sending a rebuke through the pagan sailors. It says that when they realized that, they asked Jonah, they knew this was, first of all, they knew that this, this storm had to be something supernatural. They'd never seen anything like it before, and it kept growing in intensity as they took steps to try to save their own lives. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said, who are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew, and I serve the God, I serve the God of the sea and the land. And they said, what have you done to us? They realized right away that he was responsible Folks, uh, that softened Jonah up just a little bit more. And that God sent one final prompting. He gave Jonah the ability to see the fear in the eyes of these sailors. And he realized their experience and their fear is because of me. It's because of me. Folks, our wrong choices and our sins affect the people around us. It's true, especially those we love. Sometimes we say, no, this is my choice, it's my sin, but it always affects people around us. And when Jonah saw that his disobedience was having a huge impact on the sailors, it softened his heart completely. And we come to verse 12 in chapter 1 that says this, and this is the turning point in Jonah's heart and life. He says there in the boat to these sailors, I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. It's me. I'm responsible. 
He takes ownership of, a dis, of his disobedience. One pastor calls that verse the, the 1 John 1, 9 of Jonah's life. And the first John 1 John 1.9 says, if we, are con, uh, faithful, excuse me, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Joseph, Jonah was agreeing with God. He was owning his sin. He was confessing to God what he had done. Now what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at four steps, four stages that God takes us through in restoring us when we've fallen away, when we've chosen to disobey. And... The purpose of these is for God to get Jonah back on track and get him where he wants Jonah to be. And the first stage is there in verse 12. I know that it is my fault. The first stage that Jonah takes is the stage of confession. And that's there in the first chapter. The next three steps we'll find in Jonah chapter 2. We're going to be reading from the book of Jonah. If you want to follow along, you can grab a pew Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can go to page 925. Some of the verses, not all of them that I'm about to read to you, um, are going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read the ones that I want to highlight because we're going to touch on them briefly. And again, you have four acts in this drama. You have four scenes, if you please. And we're finishing one scene, but the end of that scene, the bookend of that first scene, is now the, the bookend of the front part of this next chapter. Jonah 1.17, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. He continues, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, and the deep surround me, and seaweed was wrapped around my head. I love that. It's not enough that God swallows him, gets him in the guts of He's in the belly. He's, the, the fish's body is trying to digest him right now. Okay, and then God, and then he gets seaweed. It's like, come on, God, seaweed. On top of all, it's like the exclamation mark of where he's at and where God has him. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath marred me in forever. But you brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. That's the second time in ten ver six, seven verses where he mentions the holy temple. Why would he mention that? Because that's where the Hebrew people went in order to meet and get right with God and to hear what God had to say to them. And so he's saying, God, I've rebelled, I've went this way, but now I'm coming back and coming back to the temple because I need to hear from you. Those, this is a great verse. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And then this, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Uh, that must have been picturesque. And I don't know if you've ever thrown up. There's a pleasant smell. And, um, and chances are, maybe he's bleached complete. He's albino, albino white. Looks like somebody just whitewashed him. There's... <laughs> setting the stage uh, for a message from the Lord. I was just laughing at this when I read it. I thought, too bad his name is not Chuck. What's up, Chuck? And, um, and, but anyway, I digress. And this is the last, if you might please, the end bookend of this chapter. 
chapter 3, 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. After the step of confession where Jonah finally willingly not just articulates but owns his disobedience, he says, it's my fault. And that's step one. And then God begins to move him through three more steps of restoring his prophet to getting him toward and going to Nineveh. And the second stage is the longest of the three I'm going to share with you this morning. It's the stage of brokenness. It's his fault to be in the predicament he's in, in the belly of this big fish. It's a predicament for the trouble the sailors are also experiencing as well. That's confession. But God now wants to take him further in the process. Why? Because he wants to turn him around and get him where he was sending him. And that's the process of brokenness. Now, brokenness comes to us in a variety of packages, and all of them are poorly wrapped. Nobody asks to be given a package entitled brokenness. But it comes in all shapes and sizes. It can be addiction, death, divorce, illness, incarceration, job loss, rebellion, rebets, regrets. It can be secrets unveiled. It can be tragedy. And like Jonah, though, sometimes it can be the result of, of consequences that you experience because of bad choices. It can be disobedience. It can be rebellion. It can be wounds that you receive because of the direction you've gone. And all of those I just mentioned, those, uh, in Jonah's case, were all self-inflicted. But sometimes brokenness is not self-inflicted. It's something that happened to you. You didn't choose it. Somebody wrongs you and you are hurt. Somebody charges you with something and you're found guilty, but you're innocent. And the impact of their choices on your life hurt you deeply. And sometimes brokenness comes to us like the bumper sticker says, stuff happens. It just happened. Nothing that, it wasn't your fault, but all of a sudden the tests come back positive. You have cancer and it's stage four. She walks away. He leaves you. They die. You didn't choose that. That wasn't your fault, but it happens. And oftentimes it comes at great cost or great pain, and it can't be fixed. But brokenness can be defined as this. Brokenness is coming to the end of yourself. And why is that important? Because it's then and only then that we lean into God and to God alone because we're desperate, we're hurting, we're alone, we have no place else to turn. I was in a conversation with a friend just a couple of days ago and she was telling me about one of her friends who's in a really tough spot, I mean on multiple levels, and the word hope is no longer in her vocabulary. And this person said to her, you know, I feel like I'm coming to the end of my rope. Sometimes this end of the rope is this in-between place, this in-between place. And there was this life you had, and this terrible thing has happened, and now you, this life you're going to have, but right now you're in that no-man's land, and you're isolated, and you're alone, and you're empty, and you don't see any hope. You see loss and pain, and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's where God sometimes has to take us and he wants us to be. Why? Because it's only when we come to the end of ourselves 
that we have the opportunity to meet God in a beautiful, impactful, new, and wonderful way. When everything else is stripped away from us, it's usually then that we turn to God with all our heart and we run into his arms. It's only then that we come to the point where we can say a verse like this and mean it wholeheartedly. Psalm 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you in being with you? I desire nothing on earth. You could almost say, I have nothing else on earth. Now, it's not the heart of God to allow us stressful, hurtful, painful situations to come into our lives. God would so much rather have us uh, pursue him because we desire him rather than desperation for him. But sometimes, if we're honest, God has to bring those hard things into our lives to rattle our cage and to get our attention to wake us from our slumber. Some of you might be like me. I just I don't need revelation. I need revelation upside the head in the form of a two-by-four. Maybe I'm alone in that. But sometimes God has to bring this into our lives. Why? Because he knows our tendency to do our own thing and to go our own way. And so what's he do? He allows life to happen. And it breaks us. Let me ask you a question. You ever been broken? You ever been broken? It doesn't take very long to be around someone before you can really determine whether or not they've ever been broken. And I'm not talking about just being broken where you're, you, you have loss and, and you're overwhelmed and, and you're in pain, but I'm talking about a different type of brokenness and what I want to call godly brokenness. And there's several unique aspects to godly brokenness. The first one is this. Godly brokenness causes us to cry out to God. Jonah says in verse 2, In my distress I called out to the Lord. Many times we can be broken, we come to the end of ourselves, but for many people that's, that's the end for them. That's the end product. Uh, their brokenness does not lead them to a deeper walk with God. In fact, sometimes it causes somebody to bail on God, at least for a season. Their brokenness does not cause them to lean into and run into his arms. Secondly, godly brokenness recognizes not only God's involvement, but also, and this is a hard piece, recognizes God is just in what he does. Jonah 2.3 is very interesting. It says this, You, you God, hurled me into the deep. Now, if you were here last week, you would say, no, no, uh, God didn't hurl you into the deep. The sailors did. But I want you to understand, Jonah is now in the belly of this big fish. And he has been given there a new set of lens. He has a whole new perspective. His hindsight is now 20-20. And he realizes it wasn't the soldiers who threw him in. And it didn't, he didn't get thrown in because he told them to throw him in. He realizes that God has placed him there. And as difficult as it's going to seem, God placed him there because God loves the prophet. And he still believes in him. And he's trying to build into him. And get him back doing what he was called to do. You hurled me into the deep. Your waves and breakers swept over me. He's saying it was you, oh my God, that threw me out of the boat. Another aspect of brokenness is this. Bitterness is not brokenness. And brokenness is not bitterness. Why do I say that? Because sometimes pain comes into our lives and it just breaks our heart and we uh, be, can become bitter. 
And if we don't become bitter, at least we now have another element. We're disillusioned, okay? Disillusioned and disappointed with this God that we love and serve. And here's the deal. Bitterness has its root in pride. It's a form of pride. It reeks of entitlement. Bitterness responds this way. God, what is this? What is this? We point this finger at God and we say, why did this happen to me? After all I've done for you, of all the terrible people in the world who do not love you, who do not serve you, and you choose me, you dump this on me, this is not right. This is not fair. Ever felt that way? Interestingly, if you read chapter 2, he's in the belly of a big fish. <laughs> he's not out for lunch, he is lunch. But you don't sense any bitterness in Jonah. No resentment, no pride. It's all gone. It's been taken away because now he's a broken man. I want to give you a caveat here. Here's something that we've discussed before, but I want to say it again because it fits. Sometimes we get our underwear in a knot over this issue of fairness, especially when we don't get what we want or get our way. And we say, that's not fair. We get frustrated, don't we? Do you ever tell it to your kids? And they say, that's not fair. Sad thing is that we as adults, we continue to use that phrase, especially in our relationship with God. All of us have events in those moments, those heartaches and heartbreaks that make no sense to us. And it can be 10, 15 years ago. It can be present day. We cannot connect the dots. This does not make sense. And when life hurts and life happens, we have a hard time with Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Hard to wrap your arms around that when it's significantly hard because of loss. Romans 8:28, another one that's hard to wrap your arms around when life hurts. All things work together for the good. Yeah, right. But it's those very moments where we find out what faith is, and faith is believing in what, what can happen, and might happen, and will happen. And trusting God even when we don't understand. Ecclesiastes 7, 13, 14 says it this way, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten out what God has made crooked? There are going to be mysteries and situations that you will never on this side of eternity be able to make sense out of. It goes on to say, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. I want to submit something to you. I believe that someday, when heaven is our home and we're with him and we're on the other side of we Folks, we tend to measure everything and define everything between two dots. The day we're born and the day we're buried, and we try to make sense of that. But ours is an eternal God, and we have an eternal soul, and we do not get to see what's beyond that. And I believe someday, when I stand in heaven, and I've got some questions to ask him, that he's going to do what Paul Harvey said. Now you know the rest of the story. And you're going to see how that impacted eternity. And you're not going to say that was fair because I don't think fair is a word of God that he uses in heaven. What you will say when you see the whole story in the continuum and you see what happened afterwards, those things we don't see and we can't recognize and that we will not know in the here and now, we will know in the, there and then. We'll see that and I believe you'll see with awe and humility that was the exact 
right thing. That's the hope I have. That's the God I know. There are so many mysteries, folks, that we don't understand on this side. I was uh, 14 years old when I met Larry. He was about two, three years younger than me. And we became friends, which is weird at that age to have a kid be a friend of yours. But his was a unique story, and he was older than me in life years, if you know what I mean by that. And the reason I say that is because one day when Larry was uh, nine years old, nine or ten years old, he was out playing with friends, and he fell and he broke his leg. Now, some of you have had that happen, broken egg, a broken leg, broken arm, somebody in your family. It's very typical, and that's what happened. And so he went to the hospital, had an x-ray. They put a cast on, all of his friends signed it. He got a cute pair of, uh, of, of crutches, and he endured that for several weeks, and he got the cast off. End of story. Nope, because about three or four weeks after he took the, the, the cast off, he fell and broke his leg again. His leg again. And that's what we call deja vu. You know, and it was kind of a freak thing, and kids laughed about it. He went and got another x-ray. Yep, broke it. It wasn't completely healed. They put a cast on it. He didn't have to get crushes. He still had his. And end of story, no, because a few weeks after he got that cast off, he broke it again, red flashing light. So they took him in. They did some tests, and what they found out is that Larry had a very, very for rare form of bone cancer. And that's why it kept breaking. And that began a three-year journey of him fighting cancer. I met him after the first year, and we became uh, good friends. And I watched him go through the difficulty of cancer. And I want you to know, this was the 70s. And cancer back in the 70s had a synonym. And that synonym was death. And so I watched Larry go into the hospital, and he would go into a coma, and they would give him all this mess. They, they would say, hey, say goodbye to your son. I remember being there. I was just 15 years old trying to make sense of all this, 14, 15 years old. He'd go in the hospital, almost die, and then he would come out of the coma, and he'd go home. And then he'd go to the hospital and almost die, and he'd go home. One time I went to the hospital to see him, and he was laying on a, be a bed of ice. His fever was right around 106 degrees. And they said, if it goes higher, and he was already starting to have some seizures, they had him on ice for three days. Well, one day he got really sick. And with tears running down his face, he told his mom, Dad, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Mom, don't make me do this again. Let me stay here. I want to die at home. A few weeks later, he was so weak, they laid him on the couch, which would become his deathbed. And I would be there seeing him. And I remember one night being there, and he was already had slipped into a coma. And he would take a breath like this. <gasps> and there would be 20, 30, 35 seconds of nothing. And then another deep breath. <gasps> Three or four breaths a minute. And one night I got a call and he'd passed away. And I, I was at his house when they, they took him off the the couch, and I remember, I know it sounds weird, things you remember like this, I remember his outline of his body was completely, it was like it was a cast, you know what I mean? He'd been in mud and it hardened. You could see exactly where his legs and body laid when he died. I watched him put him on the gurney. I was a pallbearer at his funeral. And it crushed me. I was a punk kid. I wasn't a Christ follower. I could not connect the dots. I still can't connect the dots. He was 13 years old, great kid. 
There were so many nevers that he didn't have in life. He never got to, to play Little League Baseball. He never got to play football in junior high. He never got to drive a car. He never got his license. He, he never went on a date. He didn't get to go to prom. He never got a diploma. And it crushed me. I could not, and I still can't connect the dots. And I've been given 48 more years than Larry got. And it still messes me up. Such a great kid. And when I'm back around the area where he passed away and, and where he's buried, I go to his grave by myself, and I clean up around his graveside, and I sit there in front of his tombstone, and I wash it off. And I trace his name with my index finger, and I weep. And I don't get it. And you know what? As I share that story, every one of you has a story like that where you've had loss and you can't make it make sense. You can't connect the dots. But I believe one day, I believe one day I'm going to get to see the rest of the story. And when God shows me the rest of the story, the impact that Larry had, and maybe some other things that happened that I can't see here and now, but I will then and there, it'll make sense to me. It'll not only make sense to me, I'll say, that's the just thing. It's exactly right. There in the belly of the great fish, Jonah realizes that God has put him there and that God was just in doing so. And when a person is broken in a godly way, they recognize that God and God alone is their answer and their deliverer and the only one where life can be found. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. It's when it comes to the point of being, end of, I don't trust myself, I know I can't fix it, I come to the end of myself and I say, God, I recognize in a new way, you are God and I totally am committed and devoted and need you. There's one other thing I want you to see about brokenness. Brokenness, when it approaches God, approaches God on the basis of his grace and not on the basis of human effort or personal merit. Verse 8 is such a great verse. It said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's the situation. Life goes south for us, and we try to fix it. We do everything we can to fix it, and sometimes we don't want to deal with it. You know what we do? Then we just become busy, and we don't embrace this moment. But we cling to these worthless idols instead of running to the open arms of grace that are there. When a person is struggling with addiction or alcoholism, you know what the first thing they have to say? Confession. I'm an alcoholic. If you've ever been to one of those meetings, they'll say, hi, uh, we have anybody new here? Stand up. What's your name? Bob. Tell us about yourself, Bob. Bob says, I'm an alcoholic. He embraces it. That's the only chance he has to beat his addiction. And then he needs community. And so many times, folks, we grab for straws instead of going where life can be found. We forfeit the grace that could be ours. And we approach the throne, we approach God on the basis of grace. Why? Because we bring nothing to the table. Jonah doesn't say, well, God, I've been good. I've served you. I've taken these nine trips. I'm a good communicator. I'm a veteran. I've got the notches on my belt. I've got the stickers for accomplishment. It's none of that. You know what he says now? He doesn't say any of that. You know what he says? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a basis of grace. Folks, when we are broken, 
We understand grace in a way that cannot be understood or embraced unless we're broken. There's a depth there, and it changes us. And we're grateful for it, and we're humbled by it. A third step, and these last two are short, is yieldedness. Yieldedness. The point of yieldedness. He says, I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. It's not about me, God. It's about you. And I love saying it this way. It, it came to me. Maybe it doesn't make sense. I make a U-turn. Does that make sense? I make you. It's about you. Not me. It's about you. I make a U-turn. You know what another word for this U-turn is? Repentance. I own it. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to choose to go to you. I make a 180-degree turn. If we're going to experience the life that God has for us in Nineveh, we've got to go and do it God's way. God, I'm yours. You lead. I'll follow. And then we come to chapter 3 and the fourth point. The fourth and final stage of brokenness is right here. To follow in obedience. To follow in, obe in obedience. Jonah 3.1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I gave to you. And you know what? I want you to understand this. God's recommissioning him, but he never uncommissioned him. I want you to get that. Jonah tried to mail in his resignation. Why would you mail in the resignation? Because you don't want to talk to your boss. You're going to just sneak out the door. It didn't happen. God never uncommissioned him. He said, hey, by the way, remember? We have a work to do. Go and proclaim. And so he did. So what about you? Listen, you come to that fork of the road, where, where are you leaning? Are you leaning toward Tarshish or are you leaning toward Nineveh? Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and test and know my heart. See uh, my thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. It's like saying, okay, God, I'm going to get real with you. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Here's a flashlight. Search me out because I know there's stuff there that you and I still have to work on. What's your stuff? What's keeping you from Nineveh? Is God's spirit real and active in your life that you've made room for him to do searches, periodic searches? One of the areas I think we struggle the most in is this. We're comfortable. We're comfortable. We're comfortable in our walk with God. We're comfortable in our marriages. We're comfortable as our parent. We're comfortable in our jobs. We're just comfortable. And we've gradually d d drifted. And now we find ourselves drifting towards Tarshish. And we're not even looking towards Nineveh. We end up in a very dark place. So which stage do, you, stage do you need to take today? Confession, brokenness, yieldedness, or obedience? What's keeping you from what God wants to do with you in Nineveh?